marital affair by Max Alexander. He was a successful businessman. She was a suburban housewife. For 20 years, they kept quiet about their fatal affair. Gail Bergstrand sat bolt upright in bed, terrified. Her apartment had thin walls and she and her husband Richard had got used to tuning out the lives of their friendly next-door neighbours. But at 2.30am on February 28, 1982, Gail heard sounds from Melinda and David Harmon's bedroom that she couldn't ignore. On the other side of the wall came a series of jarring thuds she recalls vividly all these years later. I couldn't imagine what it was, but I knew it was probably not right. Gail put her ear to the wall. After the banging stopped, there was the sound of a creaking floor. More than an hour later, Melinda Harmon, then 24, showed up at the Bergstrand's door with a bruise on her cheek and spots of blood on her nightgown. Two men had broken into their home, she told Gail, and killed her bank manager husband in bed then demanded the keys to the bank before knocking her unconscious. Police rushed to the Harmon bedroom and found an unspeakable crime scene. David, 25, had been attacked with a heavy blunt object while asleep and defenceless. His face was so badly beaten that he was unrecognisable. It was my first murder scene, recalls Paul Morrison, then a young prosecutor, and to this day it is the most gruesome I have ever seen. There was blood everywhere, on the ceiling, walls, down the hall. One police photograph reveals an eyeball on the floor. Within hours, Detective Joe Pruitt drove over to interview Melinda, who was secretary to the Dean of Students at Mid-America Nazarene College, a Christian school in Kansas. Sitting on the sofa next to Melinda, a striking blonde, was the Harmon's best friend Mark Mangelsdorf, a handsome student president at the college. Mark, then aged 21, had befriended Melinda in the dean's office a few years earlier and became an extended family member to the couple. He played squash with David, had dinners at their home, even did his laundry there using his own key. He was so close to the Harmons that he rented a flat nearby, though the area was on the other side of town from the college. With Mark listening, Melinda retold the story of the violent attack by two men for the detective. But the more Pruitt heard, the more suspicious he became. This was a brutal crime of rage, he says, but she's got this little bruise on her cheek. And Mark's hair is wet like he just took a shower. Why didn't Gail Bergstrand hear screams of horror from Melinda or the voices of those violent intruders demanding keys? Why was there no sign of forced entry? And the plot seemed crazy. A vicious murder to get bank keys? based on the absurd idea that a bank would leave money lying around overnight? And, in the end, no one robbed the bank. After 20 minutes, Pruitt concluded that he was, in fact, interviewing the murderers. But why did they do it? One obvious possibility was a love affair. Suspicion towards Mark and Melinda intensified when a bloodhound tracked descent from the crime scene to a skip behind Mark's apartment. No murder weapon was found, but investigators did obtain minute blood samples from Mark's carpet. A downstairs neighbour said he heard what sounded like a vacuum early that morning. When police arrived later in the day, the place reeked of household cleaners. 
the gap between the murder and Melinda's arrival at the Bergstrands would have given Mark time to walk home and clean up. Still, with no DNA testing available in 1982, the physical evidence was weak. Back at the crime scene, analysts found no footprints or fingerprints that would implicate a killer. The motive was also sketchy. If Mark and Melinda were romantically linked, they kept it secret. I had no sense of a relationship, says Dr Donald Stelting, then Dean of Students and Melinda's boss at the college. Our local church had a program in which college students were adopted by families who would have them over for Sunday dinner. I assumed the relationship was something of that nature. Meanwhile, there had been no hint of discord between Melinda and her husband. David adored her, recalls Joy Hempy, who worked with him at the Patron State Bank and Trust. He was always buying her gifts, a bracelet or perfume. One day he brought in a puppy for her. If, for Melinda, the thrill of their five-year marriage was gone, it was hard to imagine her conspiring to kill such a devoted partner. Divorce would seem a more reasonable option. And David's life insurance policy of about $84,000 was hardly worth murder. Nor could friends imagine Mangelsdorf as a cold-blooded killer. He grew up in a working-class family in Missouri and was regarded as a regular kind of guy, according to Kevin Jacobowski, who played ice hockey with both Mark and David. Gail Bergstrand remembers him as friendly and outgoing, what you'd expect of the student president of a small Christian school. Melinda and Mark strongly denied involvement in the murder. Then, as if to prove there was no romance, they ceased contact with each other. As weeks went by with no arrests, rumours flew. Some locals believed authorities were reluctant to prosecute a case that would embarrass the Church of the Nazarene, where, it turned out, Melinda's father, the Reverend Wilma Lambert, was a leader. Others complained that the police should have obtained better evidence. Police say the case was no different from many crimes where a suspect is identified, but the proof just isn't good enough. After David's funeral, Melinda moved home to Ohio. Mark moved in with the college dean, Dr Stelting, and his wife, and that spring graduated with honours. At an end-of-year ceremony, classmates gave him a standing ovation. He returned to Missouri for a job before going to Harvard Business School. At their home in New York State, David Harmon's parents suffered in silence at the unsolved murder of their only child. We were told not to talk about the case, says his dad John, a retired schoolteacher. It was only by the sustaining power of my religious belief that I survived. Years passed. Detective Pruitt retired. But in 2001, encouraged by new DNA technology, the police department opened its cold case files. The Harmon murder was assigned to two detectives, Steve James and Bill Wall. The pair pored over stored evidence, interviewed Pruitt and witnesses such as the Bergstrands, and even flew to Rochester to talk to John and Sue Harmon. Their conclusion? It was a love triangle, says Wall. Either Melinda or Mark killed David, or they both conspired. But DNA evidence alone was unlikely to crack the case. Blood samples from Mark's flat had degraded over the years. And even if a crime lab found David's DNA in his friend's home, that would hardly prove murder. We knew we had to get Melinda or Mark to talk, says James. The pair, it turned out, had both gone on to lead successful lives. Melinda had married Mark Raish, 
now a prosperous dentist, and was a stylish mum with two kids, living in an imposing home in a suburb of Columbus, Ohio, where she was active in the church. Mark was a high-flying executive, commuting from his home in Texas to his home as Chief Operating Officer at Omni Services, which owned a uniform rental company. He and young wife Christina, also a rising business executive, were planning to start a family. Mark supported three children from a first marriage to a woman he started seeing late in his last year at college. Believing Melinda might be more likely to talk, the detectives called on her on the morning of December 17, 2001. We caught her off guard, says Wall. She answered the door in a bathrobe with her hair wrapped in a towel. We'd like to talk to you about your late husband, David, Wall said. After an awkward pause, Melinda replied, How can I help? Recalls Wall, I think she felt she could manipulate us and fix this. While Melinda went to get dressed, the detectives waited in the hall, admiring two Christmas trees. When she returned and invited the men into her spacious kitchen, they asked her to recall what happened that night. Says Wall, she starts telling this story about how she's awakened by the horrifying sounds of a shadowy figure striking her husband. There's no mention of two guys, no mention of the bank keys or getting knocked unconscious. Wall and James looked at each other. We were both thinking the same thing, says Wall. She didn't remember the lie she told in 1982. Wall moved in. I told her, I know it was you or Mark who killed David. I was that blunt. She puts her head in her hands. That's when she tells us that she felt Mark's presence in the room and admits she had an inappropriate relationship with him. For the next six hours, at her home and in front of a video camera at the local police station, Melinda talked in circles, never admitting involvement in the murder while retracting her original tale of the two intruders. With her, it's all about perception, says Wall. What's my family going to think? How can I tell you the truth without making me look bad? For several months, the detectives worked to have additional forensic testing done. Finally, in December 2003, Melinda was charged with murder and conspiracy. A week before her April 2005 trial, Mangelsdorf was arrested on the same charges. By then, he and Christina had one child and another on the way and were living in an expensive home in a New York suburb. Mark had moved up to become a senior executive at Parmalat, an international food conglomerate. At Melinda's trial, Paul Morrison, now a district attorney, argued for the prosecution that Melinda and Mark plotted to kill David so they could be together. He claimed Melinda so feared the stigma of divorce that murder was the only option. In her twisted world, it was better to be the widow Harmon than the divorcee Harmon. Her lawyer counted the case was entirely circumstantial and could not be proved. Melinda never took the stand, but Mark did in her defence. He declared there was no affair and insisted, I did not kill David Harmon. Melinda was found guilty. What did her in was that she said on the videotape that she had lied to Joe Pruitt years ago, says juror Randy Spector. Why would you do that if you were innocent? A tougher battle lay ahead. Unlike Melinda, Mark had never incriminated himself and the evidence against him was weak. So Morrison offered Melinda a deal, a reduced charge of second-degree murder, which would lower her sentence from 20 to life to 10 to 20 years, 
with the possibility of parole after five and a half. In return, Melinda would testify against Mark. A broken and bitter Melinda agreed to the deal and finally told the truth. How her romance with Mark began in the summer of 1981 with kissing in their living room. She detailed how Mark grew jealous of David while maintaining a veneer of camaraderie. Using his key, he would enter when no one was home and count the condoms in the drawer. If one was missing, he would get angry at Melinda for having sex with her husband. He pressured her to divorce, but she resisted because of religious beliefs. Eventually, he discussed the possibility of David dying in a staged car accident. Soon, the plot was changed to nighttime intruders. All you have to do is lie, he told Melinda. A week before the murder, Mark told her he had bought a crowbar and that the date was nearing. On the night of the killing, she had slept fitfully and awoke to find someone in a mask beating David to death. She ran into the bathroom, then retreated downstairs. Mark soon came down and said it was done. Before leaving, he hit her with his fist, according to the plan. Her description of the killing was shockingly blunt, but the case against Mark was not straightforward. It would boil down to his word against hers, and she was a convicted criminal. After a flurry of legal manoeuvres, Morrison and Mark's lawyer negotiated a deal in which Mark would plead guilty to second-degree murder and face the same time as Melinda. Many observers, including David's father, felt it was too lenient. Both of them already had 24 years of freedom, says John Harmon. On May 12, 2006, Melinda walked into the courtroom to face sentencing and her late husband's father. David's mother, Sue, died before Melinda's trial. As she wept, John Harmon dismissed her as a master manipulator. Melinda stood and apologised. I am horrified beyond words that I was ever connected to this, she said. I knew the minute it happened that it was wrong. Earlier that day, Mark Mangelsdorf surrendered. He sat still while Harmon berated him as selfish beyond description. Mark apologised, but it sounded hollow. Part of his deal was admitting participation in the crime. I am truly sorry for David's death, he said, which is not the same as saying he did it. Mark's wife Christina shook as her husband was led away. We'll keep his picture on the windowsill, she said between sobs, and the kids will kiss him goodnight every night. Watching this dramatic farewell, it was easy to feel sorry for Christina and her family, as well as Melinda's husband and kids. But it was easier to believe that for David Harmon and his dad, a version of justice had at last been served. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price. Thank you.